Please open your Bibles to join me in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9 in verses 14 through 32. And as you're turning there, I just want you to go somewhere with me. Imagine that you have just completed the most fantastic month of your life. In the course of said month, you received a promotion that you have been waiting for. On top of that, your favorite sports team won the championship that has eluded them for all of these years. For the entire month, none of your kids argued at all. You took them to the grandparents, and you were able to spend some quiet time. Remember what that is, friends? Your your dog did not tear anything up. You got a new car, and it was a hassle-free experience. Remember, this is a hypothetical situation. You and your spouse depart for an all-inclusive trip to Sandals, Jamaica. At the conclusion of your month of bliss, with no arguments, no fusses, no torn-up things by the dog, you get home. You arrive to Houston Hobby, because who would ever fly out of Bush? You You drive your car from your parking place directly to the grocery store to make a pickup and you have not allowed yourself to be bothered by any type of news whatsoever for the course of this entire week. When you pull into the grocery store, you notice that it is full. You are at HEB. It is loaded down with people. You walk into the store. There are murmurs and whispers around the store. Somehow you have missed that there is a hurricane on the way. You are in the midst of grocery store chaos. Everything that you purchase usually is missing. You're having to buy store brand. Be thankful you're at (laughs) H-E-B. You have left what seemed to be an incredible situation and moved into anything but in the midst of chaos. In Mark chapter 9, and our time together last week in the text, Jesus' top three disciples were with him at what is called the transfiguration. They saw Jesus and got a glimpse of who he really is. They're coming down the mountain. And when they get to the bottom of the mountain, they are met with chaos. Surrounded by chaos. Overwhelmed by chaos. Verse 14, when they came to the disciples, Jesus, the three, meeting the other nine, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. Chaos. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and they ran to greet him. They asked him, what are you arguing about? Uh, Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher... I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and and he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. 
So they brought the boy to Jesus. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father from, from childhood. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, can you have compassion on him and help us? Jesus said to him, If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command to you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it came out shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him. And he stood up. After he'd gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them this can only come out by nothing but prayer. Then they left that place. And they made their way to Galilee, but did not want anyone to know it. He didn't want anyone to know it. He was teaching his disciples and he was telling them the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him, I shared on, on Facebook the other day I've gotten an opportunity to preach through much of the Bible this is a text that I've never interacted with to teach a group of people I have lived it And as I look around this room, I, because I know you, I know so many of you, not all of you, I know that many of you have lived this text as well. If you read the headers in your Bible, the header for this section is the power of faith over a demon. Uh, though I do like those headers, I, I do believe that this one uh, buries the lead. This whole text comes down to this. I believe, could you just help my unbelief? And every single one of us who walk with Jesus for any amount of time, that, that's something that we feel deep down in our souls. That we look around at the chaos of the world in which we live and, and how it seems to be functioning and we would say, Jesus, I believe, could you help my unbelief? God, I believe that you are attempting and you are working to make the world right. That you are resetting all that has been undone by sin and death and hell and brokenness. I trust that because I can remember the day where I placed my faith and my hope and my trust and my belief in you. But I really need you to help my unbelief because every time I turn on the television or look at my phone, it seems as if the world is still not running away from its brokenness. 
we look around and we see the celebration of, of abortion and the fight for, for what that represents, that lives would be undone. And we, as people who claim to believe that Jesus is the one who makes us in his image, would, would look at that and we would see that there are people who would champion that. We would say, God, could you just help my unbelief in the midst of this world? And we, we, last Saturday, there was a shooting at a grocery store because of the color of people's skins. And we look at, at the world in which we live and would we ask God, I, I believe that you are right and I believe that you are good and I believe that you care for hurting wayward people. God, could you just help my unbelief in this? And, and we look at scandals, not just outside of the church, but within the church where there are those who would say, people who were in positions of leadership, people who call themselves pastors and leaders and teachers, they, they took advantage of people. God, I believe that you are good, and I believe that you are right, and I believe that you are true. Could you just help my unbelief in the midst of this? God, could you help my unbelief? Because everything in the world in which I live says that it's still broken. God, could you help me see that you are making things right? Help me to understand that. Help me to feel that. Help me to sense that. They come to the disciples. And when they come to the disciples, we realize very quickly... The faith is not about a placement, it's about a person. The disciples in this passage, they have the idea that they can fix this. Jesus, the top three, come down. JV is there, dealing with a demon-possessed boy. Large crowd around them. Scribes have shown up, because the scribes always show up to cause a problem. They are the pot stirrers. And if you don't know what a pot stirrer is, you may be one. When the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed. They ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with him about? What is causing all of this? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to, to you. Now, now let's just notice who he brings his son to. He does not bring his son to the bench guys. He does not bring his son to, to the backups. He brings his son to the superstar. He brings his son to the one who makes things right. He has a spirit that, that has made him do, unable to speak. It seizes him. It throws him. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples, since you weren't here, to drive it out. And they didn't. You been there? Jesus, I needed you to be here, and it did not seem like you were here, so I asked them, and they are having a problem. Namely, they cannot undo a demon. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, those are not kind words from our compassionate Messiah. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. They have been, these disciples have been thinking about what they could do and not why they could do it. They were missing the who. My grandmother, and many of you know, I share regularly, she raised me and there were numerous insults that she would throw at you from time to time that were very grandmotherly and caring. 
And then there were tier two insults. That was usually, if you were doing something super dumb, she would say something to the effect of, I'm going to cloud up and rain all over you, as if she is the Norwegian god of thunder. But the number one insult in her home was to call you by her husband's name. Her ex-husband's name. His name was Bean. Complete side note. His name was Bean and her name was B. We got to think through stuff like that. She would call you Bean. I never met the man, but I know numerous things about him. He cheated on her. He was angry, abusive, and an alcoholic. And though I, and whoever she happened to be insulting for the most part, was none of those things, those words were intended to redirect your thought. When Jesus uses this phrase about these disciples, he is intending to redirect the thoughts of those men. What is he redirecting that toward? Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, was talking to the Israelite people about their sins and their failure to trust God, which is pretty... Honestly, it should stand out to us as people who interact with the Bible regularly because if you know anything about the story of Exodus is God had taken a people who were held captive, removed them from said captivity, and delivered them, providing for them with magic bread and birds from heaven. Just showed up out of nowhere. Chicken minis everywhere. But they didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. They didn't walk with him. They wanted nothing to do with him. Here are the things that Moses, he would talk about the Israelite people, and he actually wrote a song about them. It's kind of a banger. Listen to some of these lyrics. You are a devious and crooked children. You are fat, bloated, and gorged. You practice detestable practices. You are perverse and unfaithful. They are no sons to me. Jesus quotes directly from Moses when he is referencing this in Deuteronomy, when he says to them, you are an unbelieving generation. Now, here's the thing. You've got a crowd there. You've got the scribes there. But he's not talking directly to them. He's talking directly to his followers. They knew stuff could be done, but they had forgotten why they could even do it. This is them attempting to do God stuff apart from God. And if you and I are attempting to do God stuff apart from God, that's about you, and it's about me. God stuff apart from God is about you. You elevate yourself, you celebrate yourself, you make much of yourself. And if we pump the brakes and we reel this into our everyday life situation, we have to admit that's who we are more than we like to than we for her to admit. We've got this weird modified version of this prosperity gospel. Now we don't think the weird stuff that that gets YouTube hits. It doesn't take us the idea of a church that will profit off its people. But sometimes we can land in our Christianity with this thing where we're like, if I will do just this, then this will happen. If I read my Bible every day, then this will happen. If I make sure that my children are at this and not that, then this good thing will definitely happen.
And much of what Scripture teaches us in regard to raising children, and it, these are guardrails and guides for us, but the promise of God that they're ho- the hope of our children, the hope of our church, the hope of every family is not that we make sure that we've ushered them and steered them correctly. It is who we are ushering and steering them toward. A confidence in our own spirituality won't meet our needs or anyone else's. Jesus is referencing, acknowledging, directing his disciples in this passage to the idea, you've been doing spiritual stuff that is spiritually broken because you missed me. This is pride on display for the disciples. And spiritual pride tells us that if we live for God and do great things with God without actually, that we can actually live with God and do great things with God without actually communing with God. It's the idea that we want power and not his presence. The disciples in this passage, they've been told to do something that's very different for us. They've been told us to do something that we don't see a whole lot. I mean, I spent a lot of time around town in Lake Jackson. None of us have been trying to cast out demons recently. I don't show up and see that. But the disciples in Mark 6, they cast out demons. When Jesus starts talking about his death, here's what takes place. Mark 6, they cast out demons. The story progresses. And as it progresses, there will come a point when Jesus begins to tell these men who've seen this mighty miracle of God in the casting out of said demons that that he's going to die and that they are going to be living deaths carrying crosses. And the moment that he says this, in chapter 8, we're moving down. They can't do that stuff anymore. Remember, these are the guys who weren't with him at the transfiguration. They've just been on the side. And the last thing they heard from Jesus was, I, grab a cross and go. The crucified Savior and his cross-bearing expectation is a lot to wrap your mind around. So they brought the boy to him. The spirit seized him. It immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground. He rolled around foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening, Jesus said, from childhood? And many times it's thrown him into a fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. I think one of the things that we do when we read this passage is we kind of disassociate ourselves from the people who are actually there. Namely, this man. We know that because of what I said a few moments ago. This isn't named the the father with a demon-possessed son. But he's the person that serves as our camera into the passage. He is the one who is our avatar. He is the way that we meet with this Messiah in the passage. Look at this passage from the perspective of a parent, not just this parent. He begins to explain who his son is and what his son goes through. But in explaining who his son is and what his son is going through, he's explaining who he is and what he's going through. Because he has a son that gets thrown into fire and thrown into lakes, which means if you are his dad, you can never take your eyes off of him. 
can never leave him. When you go to sleep at night, you don't know what's going to happen to him. Some of you feel that, maybe not in this situation, but you know that. The fear of being able to go to sleep, the worry as to what may happen to your child. This man shows up to the followers of Jesus with a burden. If you can do anything, that little chance of Jesus doing something, one commentator says it's almost as if it served as flint for Jesus. If I can, if I can, of course I can. But remember, this man's life is weird. Because every day is overrun and overwhelmed by what may happen to this baby of his. And no matter how old they get, they never stop being your babies. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And this father says, I do. Help my unbelief. Or if we, we can word it, I do believe. Could you help me when I don't? Because deep down in my soul, I really want to believe. But this is really hard because I've watched him go into the water. And I've watched him go into the fire. And I've been worried about him in the kitchen. I've been worried about him around sharp objects. I believe that you can do something, but this is awful. So Jesus, if you meet his need, he didn't say this, you're meeting mine. Faith can be so misunderstood because for whatever reason we have inverted it and we've almost made it into faith is how we get what we want from God. Faith is not how you get what you want from God. Faith is how we function in the midst of chaos. Faith is trusting that God will get us to the other side and if he chooses not to take us to the other side, realizing he's not left us alone over there. Faith is realizing that we're going to experience hardship and trial, suffering and sorrow, that's going to make you wonder from time to time, where is this God that everyone seems to be saying is so good? Faith is reading the lyrics of the songs that we've sang and believing they're true, even though every bit of doubt in our heart is flexing in us, saying, there's no way that's true. There's no way that's true. Because this world is so broken. Faith is us looking and seeing that God would do something grand when it doesn't seem like grand things happen anymore. Faith is seeing that our God meets us in the midst of the mundane things of life. Faith is knowing that we will have dry seasons where it will seem as if there is no joy. And faith is realizing that God has not abandoned us if that is our situation. Because the longer we walk with Jesus, the more likely we are to experience horribly terrible things that are going to make us feel as if we have been left all alone and faith is knowing that we're not. Most believing people will not acknowledge that we have one foot on the hill of how great thou art and the other in the valley of God, where are you? 
And when we begin to admit that people who are outside of this faith are invited, they see that there is hope for them because we're not acting as if we have everything together. This man says to the Savior of the world, I don't have it all together because I don't get it. Could you meet me there? And Jesus says yes. Jesus is so frustrated with the disciples and so frustrated with the scribes. But with this man, you see compassionate Jesus. If I can... 25, then Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering and he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, don't enter him again. If you'll notice, this young man's crisis had become sideshow entertainment for everyone else. And Jesus shuts that down. This chaos needed to be addressed and cleaned up. We currently live in a society where many of us will grow sucked into conversations about horribly tragic things and they become talking points for us, and we have forgotten what the Bible says about lament. We have forgotten what Scripture teaches us about grieving and weeping. Jesus uses this man's request as an example. The demon comes out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy becomes like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and he raised him and he he stood up. It looked like everything was lost for this little boy or this older boy or however old the boy happened to be. But it wasn't lost. What you have Jesus doing in this passage is giving us a picture of the resurrection. Mark's gospel is a little tricky and it's a little different because the end when we get there, it's got a bit of a curveball there. That involves snakes. And the resurrection is almost an afterthought. Just a short blip. But what we can't miss is... The resurrection of Jesus... Is threaded throughout this book. It's there. It's there with the little girl. It's there with a glimpse in this boy who everyone thinks is dead. Jesus is showing the hope of resurrection every time we see him interact with someone who is dead or looks good as dead. 28, after he'd gone into the house, his disciples said to him privately, why could we not drive the demon out? And he told them, this kind of, this can come out by nothing but prayer. So the first time that I read that verse, I thought that's very trite on the part of Jesus. If we're being, we're still transparent, right? I sat there in a hospital room multiple times with dying family members begging God. You mean that God can't do things when I pray? Some of you have sat there. Grieving and and weeping and hurting. This passage gets its fullness from the whole of what's taking place. 
This doesn't mean that God doesn't meet us when we pray and doesn't make decisions in the midst of our grief. This passage is still about the disciples being disconnected from the Savior. Remember, they've been called to bear a cross. They have, they will be, and Jesus is saying, that cross is going to isolate you. That cross is going to alienate you. And this is a massive shift, not only in their view of discipleship, but in everyone's view of discipleship. For the world to truly be free of the power of Satan, you better trust me completely. And Jesus saying to the disciples in this passage, when you prayed in that moment, you really weren't worrying about who you were praying to. You just wanted to do a magical thing for people. Why should we pray if God knows everything? And will give us what we need. That's a pretty self-centered way to see prayer. And I have to remind myself of that because I like to pray self-centered stuff because I like myself. What the text is teaching us is that spiritual power cannot be assumed. If so, it leaves us ministering in our own power and that will become about our own power. And when things are about our own power, we have stepped away from the power of the resurrection. In this text, our Lord is teaching us about himself He's teaching us about the hope that he provides. He's teaching us about how he meets us in grief and he meets us in celebration. The good and the bad. He's always there. He meets us in the moments where we are all alone and everything feels dry. He meets us in those places of spiritual saturation. He meets us. So I'm not sure what season of that you may be in, but I want you to know that God doesn't stop meeting you because you don't feel like he's meeting you. He's for you. He, he's for you so much that he would go to a cross. And if he is for you, then no one can be against you, though everything in the world says that it is against you. Jesus is for his people. And here the disciples are still at a place where they look at Jesus and they think to themselves, finally we're starting to do cool stuff again. Because every time he would do something amazing, they would have to deal with the idea that he said, but you remember, I'm going to die. Don't lose sight of the fact that death is part of this. And if his death is part of this, that means the idea of carrying a cross is part of the way they're going to respond. Never leaving from the idea that God's people are going to deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him. Verse 30. They left the place, they made their way to Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. He was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. After he was killed, he will rise three days later. Don't forget that. Don't forget that's part of this. Don't forget that's where he, I meet you ultimately. Don't forget that me being for you means that my death is in your place. Don't forget that life because of me is because of my resurrection. Don't forget these things. So for every soul in this room right now who is in that place where your foot is standing right there in a place that says, God, I believe, and the other one is saying, I, I can't even find my footing. Help my unbelief. God would say to you, I declare that I am for you and I promise I will not leave you or forsake you no matter how dry things seem to be. 
So I pray that we as, a follow, as followers of Jesus would align with the teachings of this text. Jesus, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. And when I don't trust you, I need you to help me. I need you to be with me. Will we grieve with people who are grieving, mourn with those who are mourning, and will we celebrate with those who are celebrating, aligning our lives with the teachings of our Messiah, crucified, resurrected, as the hope of the world? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the power that it is completely, completely displaying to us here. And Lord, as I think about the room of people that I've been given the task of shepherding and the joy of shepherding, Lord, I pray that you will meet them in their unbelief right now. Meet them in in the things that waver. in the dryness of a world that is broken by sin and that is shrapneled by sin in a way that affects each and every one of us. God, would you help us to see that you have not left us? So, Lord, I pray right now for those who are grieving, Lord, that you will help their unbelief. For those who are wrestling with sickness, I pray that you will help their unbelief. God, for those who are mourning, I pray that you will help unbelief. God, if there are any in here who have never trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you will meet them where they are. Lord, like the flint mentioned here in, by that commentator, Lord, would you strike the idea of belief in them? Help them to see what it means to place their hope and their trust and their faith in you. So meet us, meet us, meet us. In the depths of despair and at the tops of mountains, would you meet us? I will be in the back of the room, and if I I, I say it weekly, I'd love to pray for you if you need to be prayed for. I'd love to talk to you about following Jesus if you need that conversation to happen. So Lord, I pray that you would help our unbelief this morning.